Healing Podcast. My name is Abby Mickey, and as a follow-up to our conversation with Taylor Wiles last week about the iliac artery endofibrosis, I chatted with Kat Steen, who is a physio in Girona, works with a ton of cyclists, and also works with some of the World Tour women's teams. She has been doing a bunch of research into the iliac artery endofibrosis that is becoming super common to run among cyclists. And so her and I chat a ton about that, how you can figure out you have it, how you can prevent it, and when you need to get surgery. It's a very interesting conversation because iliac artery endofibrosis is something that is, yeah, becoming a lot more common, or at least now that we know that it exists, uh, people know to check for it. And as it turns out, cyclists are very prone to get it. So. Before we dive into my conversation with Kat, this episode is brought to you by Zwift. With Zwift, you can train on your own time. There's no such thing as not having time to jump on your bike because you can jump on there for 30 minutes and get a super good workout in any time of day or night. And there's always a group ride going on. So if you want to join a group, you can sign on. Even if it's already started, you can jump in mid-ride. They give you a little boost so you can kind of get your feet under you. And you can ride with people who can test your levels, your skill levels, and push you into another level of your fitness. It's fine-tuned event programming that fits any schedule for Zwifters of all skill levels. Plus, they have these pace partners who you can jump into rides with these um, virtual riders, and they'll keep the pace of that group. So you can either make sure that you're going, you know, an easy level, or you can jump in the hardest level and really push yourself and keeping up with that group will be a huge motivational factor to ride a little bit harder. You always get better when you ride with people that are faster than you. So thank you so much to Zwift for sponsoring this episode. Now let's learn all about iliac artery endofibrosis. All right. So I'm here with Kat. Kat, I know you. So do you want to introduce yourself? Give us a little bit of your background. Yeah, I'm, my name's Kat Steen. I'm a physiotherapist. I work in Girona, um, originally Australian, um, have lived in Europe now for about 10 years, um, moved to Girona about four years ago and kind of discovered cycling and all the people that live here. So now I work with professional team, cycling teams, Mitch and Scott, um, sorry, bike exchange. <laughs> Um, and uh, a lot of individual professional cyclists. I um, also do a bit of work with triathletes um, and also see normal people. So, um, yeah, the clinic I have here in Girona is um, uh, it's a lovely space and we just have other people working there as well. But generally I see about 50% professional athletes and about 50% normal people. Interesting. Mm. I didn't know there was normal people in Girona. There are some normal people in Girona. <laughs> they are different to normal, normal people, but like the average level of um, athleticism and exercise is still probably in the top 1% of the population of the world, but they're still considered here kind of sub elite, I guess, in uh, Girona standards. So the reason that I wanted to chat with you today is because you've been doing a bunch of research into the iliac artery endofibrosis, which yep. is a very unknown thing, but is super common in cycling. Mm. So I mean, for me, I don't even know where to start. Like, where do you want to start when we're talking about this? Um, I guess the first thing is 
just people understanding what it is because it's a bit of a weird one when we normally think of injuries for athletes, we tend to think of muscles and bones and joints and um, maybe nerves if things go a little bit wrong. But this is an injury that's actually about the artery of um, the main artery that goes into the leg that supplies the blood to the leg. And it's relatively new in um, elite sport because previously – so the endofibrosis term actually means when the artery itself um, develops these little plaques on it and the, and the artery becomes uh, less elastic than normal. Um, and we would normally see these conditions and the, and the surgeons that now treat this condition, they would normally be treating people who are obese and diabetic and the ones who are about to lose a limb because they no longer get the blood supply needed for their tissues. So that's when they start to lose toes and things like that. So it's really unusual for these vascular surgeons to be starting to identify that an elite athlete who's very fit, who's very, you know, not obese in any sense of the word, they could be suffering from a similar blood related type issue and the pain associated with that, that a very overweight, obese, diabetic person also suffers from. So it's strange in that sense. And it's really, it's only come to my attention since I've been working with cyclists because in the general population, it's, it's not normal. It's really not normal. It's really rare. But we're currently surrounded in Girona, at least by hundreds of professional cyclists. So the population group here is really highly densely sort of leaning towards that as a potential injury that, um, yeah, needs to be identified So is it more common in cyclists than other athletes? Yes. So the research that's been done so far by the group, there's a uh, a group in the Netherlands, um, the main guy, his name is Dr. Shep. um, And so they've done a few studies over the years and they've identified the main athletic populations are cyclists um, and speed skaters. Um, triathletes. So sometimes it's in the research, again, it's kind of identified um, sometimes rugby players, but or probably ice hockey as well, or hockey as you Americans refer to it, (laughs) Um, but anything that's kind of in that flexed position for long periods of time and where where you're putting out power in a flexed position. So not all sports like this. So you wouldn't see it in runners or you wouldn't really see it in um, swimmers or something like that. But yeah, it's, it's repetitive stress in a flexed position over long periods of time at really high intensity that seems to um, these athletes start to develop this condition. Yeah, I was going to say um, skeeds, speed skaters and cyclists, it's very, you know, you're you're bending at the hips a lot, it's, yep. especially for cycling. I mean, I guess, yeah, speed skating as well. You're you're just constantly bent over. Yeah. Yep. So that, that would be... That seems to predispose. Um, the interesting one that doesn't seem to have it that I've read about so far would be rowers because rowers, again, are in that flex position the whole time. But the way that they move their bodies, they really extend. So they're in that flex position, then they push out. Mm. So they're not actually really ever activating the hip flexors. It's a very passive move into hip flexion and they and they use their posterior chain, so their glutes, their hamstrings, their back, you know, their lats. That's Whereas in cycling, you can start to really use more the hip flexors. You can pull your leg up. You can, you know, really be dominant in your quadriceps and the forward muscles. And that seems to be a predisposing thing. So it's not just being in the flex position. It's also then using those muscles that that um, create more tension and, and using your hip flexors a lot, basically. So something I've noticed is that it seems like this is becoming quite um, quite more popular. Popular is not the right word, but we're finding it a lot more in cyclists now. Do you think that that's because it's just people are more aware of it now so they know to test for it? Because I know the testing process is also super complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. And I think it is just awareness. So previously I think people would have maybe had these symptoms, but it would have – 
maybe they didn't get diagnosed and maybe they just were like, okay, I can't do this this sport anymore and they might have just left the profession or their their um, their performances may have gone down to the point where they just didn't get signed for another contract. So whereas now I think particularly some higher names uh, or, or really um, uh, uh, very um, – which said the athletes that do really well, if, if some of them, if their performance starts to drop, you know, there is money now where people will start to search out what is this reason. So you start to rule off other things. You're, okay, is it your lower back? Is it a nerve thing? Is it your training? Is it your nutrition? Is it this, is it this? And then, and that's why the diagnosis takes a long time because you do have to rule out all of those things that it could be. Um, and the, I'm sure there's a psychosomatic thing to it as well. Um but once you've ruled out all those things, it's like, oh, well, maybe actually it is the artery that's causing these issues. So it's – and the research that Shep has done, it's only been in the last 10 years or so. So it really is new to the sport to have this as a diagnosis, as a potential problem for the athlete. Yeah, but if you look at the the names of people that have had the diagnosis in the last, let's just say, three years and who have gone through surgery and come back to racing, I mean – just in the last year, we have Amanda Spratt. We heard last week from Taylor Wiles, who's currently going through the rehab process to come back from the surgery. It's like um, now that people kind of know that this is a problem, it is becoming more regular to to check for it before you've gone through all those avenues. Yeah. And I think there's positives and minuses to that. Um, one of the positives is that, okay, it will probably pick up some athletes that have this. But one of the minuses is that um, it is still really rare. So it is one of those things. And and currently, I'm sure we'll get into this later, but currently the the treatment for it is a really intense uh, surgery. Like it's not an easy thing to get this done and it's potentially life-threatening because there have been people that have died after having the surgery if they have complications in that artery, um, you know, tears after they have this, if they go back too soon. Like this is one of those ones where you really don't want to have this um, surgery unless you really need it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely there and it's, it's, I think it is, it is a diagnosis. I believe that this is something that is there, but whether it's as prevalent, like every athlete who gets pain in their leg is not going to have this. So I think it's really important to also state that you want to go through all the other processes first to figure out, could it be something else rather than saying, Oh, I have this thing. I need the surgery. I think that's not the way that this needs to go. I don't think everyone should be getting surgery. So yeah. I want to I want to backtrack a little bit and talk about the process of determining that yes, you do have the iliac artery endofibrosis because it's it's super complicated the testing. Yeah, so it's kind of like a stage testing process. Um, there's I'm working with a, a guy, Jem Arnold. He's doing his PhD with the Shep Group at the moment. Um, he's a he's a Canadian physio and he's working with that group to try and find or try and develop a um, more established pathway of diagnosis. So at the moment, um, and actually Lexi Brown did an amazing presentation for the um, Women's Cycling Alliance on all this. So her PDF, and you can probably link to that, but her PDF has all the information. It's brilliant. But you have to first, uh, they do something called an ankle. Well, first is just uh, what you feel. So the main thing is as the athlete, the symptoms are, um, pain in multiple areas of the leg. So it's usually maybe pain in the calf and the buttock or maybe pain in the thigh. Um, and that pain is a claudication pain, claudication being you are lacking blood supply. So um, it, there's, the body is basically screaming for more blood. It's not getting that, so you get pain. So then when – and those symptoms come on only when you're at the really highest intensity most of the time. Um, and then if you stop that intensity – 
then that pain tends to disappear within five minutes and you can go again. Um, so those sort of symptoms are um, what you would initially be looking for. And again, you rule out all the other things that cause, could possibly be causing that. And then you want to do a test called an ABI, which is a ankle, ankle um, uh, bicep index where you – it's kind of like a um, – uh, maximum um, intensity test. So you're on a bike, you have a blood pressure on your arm, you have a blood pressure on your ankle, you take your blood pressures and then you do maximum five minutes. And then you, once your symptoms come on, you retake the blood pressure. And if there is a lack of blood supply going into your leg, you'll see that the um, ratio between the bicep um, blood pressure and the ankle blood pressure will change. So that's saying, okay, there's some issue with your blood flow mm-hmm. that compared to the other side. If that's the case, then you can go down and get um, uh, um, ultrasounds, um, but it can't just be any normal vascular ultrasound because if again these people are elite athletes, their their veins and their arteries actually look pretty good. So it needs to be something that is done um, in a flexed position with the contraction of the hip. It needs to be done after exercise, um, and so again, it, just if you go to any vascular, you know. Um, ultrasonographer, they're not going to be able to necessarily see this. So we get some false negatives there as well. Then once you've done that, then the SHEP group has, they then do a um, an MRI um, and look at the vein. And then there's one other test that I forget off the top of my head, but it's like three or four processes that they have to go through before they're kind of like, all right, you have this thing. And yes, we can, we now think we should cut you open. Mm, so it's not just like a blood test or like oh, no. something. <laughs> Cause oh, no. I've heard of people going and just getting like, just getting an ultrasound on their hip and then it obviously comes back negative. Yes. Yeah. So if that comes back negative, I would say, and they've just done the normal one where they're lying on their, on their back, the ultrasonographer just has a bit of a look at the artery and they're like, no, it looks fine. Like that's not enough for an elite athlete. That yeah. would be enough for a diabetic person because they're getting that those claudication symptoms maybe if they're just going for a walk. But for an elite athlete, you need to be testing them when they're getting the symptoms, which is when they're at maximum efforts. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So say you go through the whole testing process and you found out, okay, I definitely have the iliac artery endofibrosis. What is the next step? Because you've said surgery is the next step, but is there anything that you can do to kind of mitigate the symptoms of it while you're building up to surgery? I know like for Taylor, she kept racing and training before she was able to get the surgery just because Trek needed the numbers. Um, so she was working a lot with you at that point. Yeah. What can you do? So this is where my passion and my bias comes in because I, and there is, there are some other athletes that I've now been working with where we've They've got the diagnosis, but they either aren't bad enough to get the surgery or um, the timing's not right in the season. And so what we've done is tried to do the conservative work, which is a lot of soft tissue work around the hip flexor muscles, a lot of stretching out of the front of the hip and retraining them to stop using the hip flexors when they ride. So I think there's a lot to do with whether the rider is um, a puller or a pusher, whether they are doing maximum efforts, maybe if they're more of a domestic role, they don't have to be at that top 90, 95% a lot of the time. And they can be at that lower level of intensity where they don't have to use the hip flexors and be really smashing it out. Because if you're not using your hip flexors when you're riding and you're using more your glutes, your hamstrings and, and that posterior chain, you kind of are turning a bit more into where the rowers would be. So you're still in that flex position, but you're not necessarily getting the same strain and pull on the artery. So there've been some athletes that I've worked with that have actually improved over the season. So they got the diagnosis, couldn't get the surgery, which in the end turns out I think is probably a good thing. We work with them for maybe six months or more. So it's not a quick fix, but if you can change the way that that person is 
using their body and stop straining the artery so much, then theoretically you, I think we might be able to turn some of this around. So you don't, I would love to see where we don't have to go, look, you've got the diagnosis, you have to have surgery. Yeah. So I think there's a lot that needs to be researched there and a lot that needs to be done. Um, it's, yeah, so it's it's really about getting the glutes working, getting that person to understand what's happening, why it's happening, getting them to um, invest in that process of actually kind of changing the way that they're riding, which is pretty hard for an elite athlete to do. Yeah, you've been doing it for a while. You've been doing it for point. a while. So those patterns are set, <laughs> right? There's a, there's a million revolutions where that leg's gone around in a certain way. Yeah. So if you're trying to change that, it's hard. So it takes time and, and effort, but um, that's where I'd want to see. So if, if you could get a diagnosis that maybe you could get a diagnosis a bit earlier to say, look, you've got this pressure on this artery. Let's try and work on this rather than saying we'd have to cut you open. So, because the other thing with that is we know that with some type two diabetics or um, even with heart conditions, like if they, if you've got a sclerotic artery, like a thickened artery wall or a stiff artery wall, if a type two diabetic can change that, if they change all their diet, those arteries do start to heal after time. So it's not like the body can't heal itself. It's just, you have to take the pressure off it first to allow it to start to heal. So my hope would be maybe if we track these athletes over a period of time and they're, and they're getting less and less symptoms over a couple of years, maybe that artery will start to heal itself. So we don't know any of this. This is purely hypothetical, but this is me being a physio thinking, let's try and fix them on a physio way rather yeah. than just going in for surgery. I guess me being an ex-elite uh, quote, elite athlete, <laughs> my thought would be like, but getting a contract in professional cycling is really hard. Yeah. If you have a contract, like, especially for women, it's pretty much just a year. It, we're, we're working with one year, a one-year system at the moment. Like, it's very rare for riders to get a two-year contract. It's becoming more normal, but it's, you know, when I was racing, I, I always raced year to year. So if you don't have time to do that and you have to get the surgery. But then the other argument would be, well, the surgery takes at least probably eight months to get back from anyway. Mm -hmm. So... The problem we have is like we don't have a guarantee that if you do the conservative approach, you'll actually get a lot better in eight months. But at the same time, if it was my body, I'd be like, I'm going to do everything I can yeah. to not do that. Um, so we, I guess it's if you can make it, if you can see small improvements, if you're not getting worse and you're still able to provide the role for the team that, and your team is happy to support you through that process, it's just if your performance, I guess, is is really low and you're really not able to do what you need to do, then I think they're the cases that I would say, okay, look, it's either you have to quit cycling entirely or you probably need to get this done. So, and that's the thing, there are levels of this. It's, it's how damaged the artery is, if it's starting to affect the other leg, if it's, um, so they can see that on these scans. They can be like, okay, you're kind of a moderate or mild case, but some of the cases are pretty severe where the athlete has been pushing for years and years and years. And there's, there's really a lot of scar tissue that builds up. There's a lot of damage to the artery that builds up. And mm -hmm. in those cases, there is a risk if that isn't going to heal, there's a risk later in life for complications associated with that as well. Mm, okay. So it's it, it kind of depends on where the person is on that diagnosis pathway of how bad they are yeah. as to what the intervention should be. Because, I mean, I can't remember if Amanda had both legs, but I'm pretty sure that Anamik Van Vluten has had both legs and she had surgery yeah. on both legs. Yeah. That was yeah. a while ago, though. That was that a was, while ago. Like, she was, I think, probably one of the first women to nail down that this was the problem and get yeah. the surgery. Yeah. 
So that was before I met her um, and by the time I met her it was, uh, you know, she was already world champ and doing yeah. all the amazing things that she does and and being like the best of the best. Um, so she didn't have any of those issues um, when I was working with her. But with Spratty there was, um, I remember working with her at the Giro one year and she just couldn't, she just couldn't perform. She just wasn't the rider that she used to be and there was just one stage where it, she was just in bits after because it was not from lack of trying, let me tell you that. It was not from her not trying to climb as hard as she could and do it. It was just like her body, she wasn't getting blood in her legs. And so for her it was, I think, a necessary thing to do. And now she's coming back and it's so nice to see her doing really well. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, there are definitely cases where, okay, she needed the surgery. Yeah. So, yeah. It's so interesting hearing you talk about it because I feel like there's so many riders out there that probably have it on some level mm. that just have no idea and mm. like have uh, have tried everything and like at, at a certain point they're just like, hey, my body just doesn't work anymore because like when I retired, I was complaining of um, my foot going numb. I would like come back from training and I couldn't unclip from my bike because my right leg was just completely numb and I couldn't like, and um, I would talk to my team doctor at the time and they were like, no, no, it can't be the iliac artery. It, it, it's in your head. Like yeah. the classic response is like, oh, it's it's just in your head. The pressure is getting to you. That's so frustrating. And, um, and now like looking back, I'm like, well, I wonder if that had been the case if it yeah. had been that. And that what would, for me, my kind of sciencey brain would be like, all right, I wish you got the testing done. And <laughs> obviously I'd love you to have continued as a writer, but even <laughs> if you then went, okay, got the testing done, okay, but I'm done with this sport, whatever. And then a few years later, get the testing done again. Or now as you're coming back to riding after having a baby, like a, when you start doing more intensity, are those symptoms going to be coming back? Or actually give it a couple of years, let everything kind of calm down, and then um, maybe put the time and effort into making sure that you don't start overusing your hip flexors again or whatever, is it something that, yeah, you didn't need this? Well, maybe then if you were going to continue to it, you did, but now in your life, maybe you don't. Yeah. So we have no idea about that. We yeah. really just don't know. So what, what kind of complications can arise if you do have it and you do nothing? Um, so things just get worse. So the artery, if you continue to ride, um, the artery can just become more thickened. Um, because it's under more and more pressure. So, uh, yeah, the artery itself can become smaller, so you get less blood supply to the muscles. And so it just um, can affect more and more muscles in the limb, in the in the leg, and you kind of get secondary things, like you'll end up getting more back pain, you'll end up getting other leg pain. It can go to the other leg because your body's just trying to really increase the blood supply, so it can increase in the other side. Um, and I remember one of the surgeons saying there was – I can't remember exactly the risk, but it was probably more along the lines of the um, type 2 diabetes where you can get um, uh, yeah, tissue damage if it doesn't get enough blood supply. So your, your tissues can actually become damaged. Um, but I don't know that that necessarily fits in with the elite athlete if you're just going for a walk. Um, so, yeah, I'm not 100% on that one for athletes. I really hope you're enjoying my conversation with Kat and we will get back to it in a second. But first, this episode is also brought to you by Shimano and their new RX6 gravel shoes. Shimano's RX6 shoes are versatile gravel shoes with a comfortable fit. They're offered in unisex wide and women's, so riders of all shapes and sizes can focus on the fun of gravel riding rather than how their feet are feeling. Featuring widely spaced lugs, 
For stability off the bike and breathable materials, Shimano's RX6 shoes are ready for mud, dust, and mixed terrain. Basically anything a gravel ride will offer. Thank you so much to Shimano for sponsoring this episode. Now let's get back to it. walk me through one or two of the um of the exercises that you do to help those who don't want to do the surgery or aren't quite to the level where you need the surgery yeah so i think the first one is trying to switch off the hip flexors so that's the biggest one they have to learn that the hip flexors don't do everything because a lot of the time with uh, the hip flexor can kind of the psoas muscle in particular attaches to the spine. The part of the reason why it is so much associated with the external iliac artery endofibrosis is there is um, actually an anatomical link between the psoas and the external iliac artery. So when the psoas contracts, the hip flex contracts, it actually pulls on the artery. So because it's got another little artery that attaches. So the problem being, if you keep using that hip flexor, the hip flexor gets bigger and bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And you, your body uses the path of least resistance. And so you just go back to that patterning again and again. And if that hip flexor is constantly pulling on the artery, um, that seems to be the thing that stretches the artery. So unless you switch that off, you're never going to get anywhere. So you can do all the glute work, you can do all the core work, but if you're still using that hip flexor as one of your primary stabilizers or um, movers of the leg, it, it's going to be the same. So the first one I do is they're all very basic, very simple exercises. So it's um, a basic core exercise where you're lying on your back, your knees are bent, your feet are on the floor, and you just drop one hip out to the side. Sorry, one knee out to the side. So it's a basic Pilates exercise, mm -hmm. but you have to do that without your hip flexors coming on. Mm. And sometimes that takes someone like three weeks to figure out because they're like, it's impossible. I have to use my hip flexor. I'm like, no, 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 you don't. <laughs> you can use other muscles. You're not supposed to use your hip flexor for everything. Mm. So I start them there and then I make sure they're do using the deep core correctly because, again, sometimes it's if the transverse abdominus is not – so the, the deepest layer of the abdominals is the transverse abdominus. That's the one that wraps all the way around to the to the pelvis. And so if, again, your hip flexors are dominant, you tend to not use your transverse abdominus as much. So we want to make sure that the transverse abdominus is the major stabilising muscle for the pelvis um, and then the glutes. So a lot of the time cyclists will – um, tend to be very TFL at tensor fascia lata. It's one of the side hip muscles. They will get very strong in their TFL and their psoas, and then they don't use their glutes so much. So they won't use their glute medius. They won't use their um, glute minimus, even the glute maximus. And so they can't ride their bike while using their glutes because the glutes aren't strong enough to come on So because they're so strong in these other patterns. So once you can switch off the hip flexors, get the transverse abdominus working, then you got to find get them to use their glutes in the position that they would be on the bike um, and then you just build up that routine. So I start the people on a um, glute routine of an exercise called an advanced clam where it's kind of like a normal clam but you make it harder by rolling them a bit more forward and they can't use their TFL in that position. So, yeah, so then I would get them onto all fours, um, hands and knees because that's a nice hip flex position, like a cycling position. Can they use their core and their glutes without the hip flexors in that position? Then I get them to use their glutes like a bridge with their feet on a wall. Can they do that but while maintaining a neutral pelvis position, no hip flexors, and then progress it onto like a standing exercise, like a, a squat, kind of like you're on a bike. And then can they again put weight through their leg without using hip flexors but using the glutes in their core and then trying to get them to feel that on the bike. So it's quite a – it's just a step-by-step -step process to get them first. Can you – yeah, switch off your 
hip flexors, switch on your core, switch on your glutes, get them in the positions that you would normally be using those muscles and progress that into where you can do that on the bike. So for the regular rider who's not an elite athlete. Yeah, I'd uh, do the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> it just takes longer. Like elite athletes are good at, they, they know their body really well. Um, but it, yeah, I would say if, if they can do, yeah, uh, basic core, basic glutes, but no, get probably they need someone to help them figure out if they're using the hip flexors or not. Mm. It's, it's pretty simple. You can just feel it with your hand if the tendons are coming on. But it's kind of hard if you were just going to say, I'll do these three exercises, that'll fix me. It probably won't because you probably, you, you might not have that body awareness to feel when you're doing the exercise correctly or not. So the specificity of the movement is actually really, really important. Yeah. Because we're trying to change the neural pathway of which muscles you're using when you're using them. I also want to talk a little bit about the process of coming back after surgery, because I think just in terms of um, athletes who have had it and like riders that we watch race and that we love to cheer for, I want people to understand how much work that they've had to put in to be back at their strongest, because obviously like you see uh, people who don't know the process, see Amanda Spratt and they're like, oh, but she's She's still not very good, but when you think about like <laughs> where she, she came through, through and what yeah. she went through, yeah, yeah, I just want people to kind of understand. Um, so the first thing is just to realize how deep they have to cut into you and how many layers they have to cut. Like it's so if you think about a um, uh, a C section, they have to cut through a few layers of a C section to you know get the baby out, and that takes quite a while for those muscles and tissues to come back together. And then this is just intensified like maybe three or four times because they have to get literally the deepest layer within you. And then they're also messing around with your arteries. So the arteries are um, connective tissue. They do have a muscular wall. So the arteries should contract. We've heard of vasoconstriction and vasodilation before. So the arteries should contract and relax. And often what they're doing is they're cutting open those arteries and they're sort of scraping out the inside, maybe replacing the artery with a, they sometimes, if the artery is really in a bad condition, they can harvest another vein from the leg called the saphenous vein. And then they patch it up. So they actually are like a hose pipe, they're attaching two parts of the vein together with this extra, two parts of the artery together with this extra vein, um, and then that has to heal, right? So if that thing breaks, you're in big trouble. Like that's when people have died, where after the surgery that that they've been in the garden, they've bent over or they've done something, and if they get a bleed there, unless you're in a hospital, that's it, you bleed out. So it's not something that you really want to rush through the, the first stages so in those first few weeks, these people are shuffling walking. Like you, you're you not moving because any time that you're putting any stretch on that artery or getting your heart rate any higher than, you know, probably 80 beats a minute, your body's going to be like, don't you move because there's a real risk if you do, there's trouble. So the first thing is they get really quite deconditioned because they're not allowed to do anything for four weeks, six weeks because the normal time healing for connective tissue is is probably closer to 12 weeks. So until you're at that 12-week mark, you just need that tissue to heal and we can't really speed that up anyway. Then you've got, okay, well, let's get you back on the bike, low intensity, don't get your heart rate above this much because, again, we're looking after this artery patch um, and then they've got to rebuild their base. So it's – and it seems to be – the surgeons seem to say maybe six months but the athletes seem to talk more about eight months before they really feel like they can put load onto the – you know, on the bike and they can feel like they can reproduce their power and they feel okay again. So it's not like a quick, oh, I'll just get the surgery and three months later I'll be great. It's like, okay, after three months maybe your vein will start to, or your artery will start to be okay, but then you have to start um, 
getting that tissue used to load again, like an extreme load. So it's not, yeah, it's not a quick process. And so any of these athletes that come back, I would think probably more like a year before, like they say eight months, but I think this is probably, people should think about, okay, it's probably going to be a year rehab before I really am, you know, at the top of my game again. (sighs) Yeah. It's not, it's not a small thing. No, No, but it's, it's been impressive to see how many riders have been able to come back from it because I mean, I just feel like maybe it's because I'm so entrenched in cycling that I feel like I'm hearing about this all the time now. Yep. Yeah. Um, but there's to be super common. There's not a lot of like specialists at all or like you you kind of have to all everyone I know who's had it has had to go to the Netherlands to the Netherlands to get it tested and figure out if they actually have it. And then like, that's the only place that they can go to do any kind of surgery or anything. I mean, theoretically, any vascular surgeon could do this um, because any vascular surgeon is used to cutting out arteries and replacing things. And, you know, you think about cardiac surgery, you know, all the time they're, they're working on veins. So it's not like there aren't a lot of surgeons that can do it. It's just the ones that identify it for athletes, uh, not that many. Again, Lexi has a whole list and it's not a definitive list, but there yeah. are there is a good group in the UK. There is a group in Australia. I've just been in contact with someone who's just had it in Australia. She's a physio and she's like, hey, what do I do? There's no research to tell me what my, my protocol is to rehab. And I'm like, yeah, we don't have a protocol. I'll let you know as we <laughs> as we figure it out. So there, it's really interesting. The There are different groups doing this, but there's no consensus on what do we do after or what even, how do we diagnose this thing? We've, we've got a little bit of an idea, but throughout the world, it will be different if you go to one place versus another. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the Shep group is definitely more, um, they seem to, like they're, they're very open from what I've heard about uh, the risks. They will say, look, this is a big surgery. You probably shouldn't do it. But yes, you have this condition and we'll do the surgery on you. <laughs> so it's this kind of like, all you right. You shouldn't do this, but, but we'll You shouldn't do, do this, anyway. but we'll do it. Yeah. You, sh- you really shouldn't get this done, but I'll do it for you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, surgeons do like to cut people open. That's their job. Yeah. So if you do go and get it, um, yeah, yeah, it's if you go get the testing there, a lot of the time they will be told, yeah, we can do the surgery on you because you have this condition. Um, whereas I know of an athlete from the UK who was diagnosed with this, but she wasn't diagnosed to the level where the surgeon there was like, okay, yes, you're, you're at this, you're, you're bad enough to do, for me to do the surgery on you. He was like, no, you have to get worse. But then in, yeah. And she was like, what the hell? This is my job. This is my career. I'm yeah. not going to wait until I can't make the teams anymore and I'm not able to ride. So she got the surgery done in the, um, the Netherlands. But then now again, another few months on, I'm like, oh, I wonder if we had done some more conservative work with her and worked on these things, what would have happened? Yeah. But Again, that's it's whatever it is. Like it's such a personal decision, and there's time. And as you say, it's hard to get a contract. So there's there's time involved. It's like, do I risk doing all this conservative stuff? Wait another six months, then I really don't have a contract, and then I still need the surgery, and then no one knows who I am, and da, 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 da. there's a lot of stress and anxiety around that because it's your livelihood and your yeah. passion. There's so. a lot of stress and anxiety in cycling anyway. S- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Regardless of if Regardless you're of Ilya Carter's work or not. Yeah. Uh, all right. So for people who are listening to this podcast and they're like, all right, I think I have this. What do you think? What would you say? Um, I think they should first rule out everything else that it could be. So I think they would need to go to someone who is a cycling-specific sports physio. Um because these days, like I can, I've worked with pro cycling enough now that I can 
treat someone and look at someone and say, okay, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. Yeah, you should go get tested. But if you just go to a normal sports doc or a normal physio, um, I don't think they'll probably have the experience to support you in that. Um, I would start doing the core exercises. I would start doing the glute exercises. If you're not doing those, I'd start doing all the stretches um, and try to figure out if you can manage this a little bit to start with, like probably three months of like, all right, what if I just focus on this stuff for a while? Is it going to get a little bit better? Um, and then I actually would go get tested because if you, even if you come up positive that you have this, it's like, okay, cool, right? This is the thing that I have. It's maybe not as bad that I need surgery right now, but if I start to, if I know that this is here and then I can act upon it and I can actually put some time and effort into trying to fix this thing, then yeah, maybe you can you know, get better and, and actually improve your, your, um, uh, you know, your wattage as well. You can improve how you feel on the bike because that's what's happened with a couple of the athletes. Now we've been able to improve them. Yeah. So I would say get tested, um, go through that process, but don't feel like if you are positive that you have to get surgery, um, and then start really working on it. Like put the time and effort into fixing those things that have actually probably caused it in the first place. All right. So other than iliac artery endofibrosis, I mm. want to ask you, I, I w was wondering about some of the other really common injuries in cyclists that you see. Yeah. Um, the main two other than crashes. So, I mean, crashes, we just get lots of broken, broken collarbones. Broken collarbones. <laughs> 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 lots of those. Uh, I've seen a lot of broken collarbones since being It's crazy <laughs> how fast people come back from broken collarbones these yeah. days. I feel like when I first started racing, like my, my best friend ha broke his collarbone and I mean, it was a couple months before he was able to ride his bike again. Oh, it's and, so different. And now. like Sam Gaze broke his collarbone at the World Championships, mountain bike World Championships. And like two weeks later, he's headed to the marathon mountain yep. bike World Championships. Yep. It's yep. crazy. Yep. I think the thing that we know now is actually once that, it depends where the collarbone breaks as well. If it's like a central break and they, and the surgeons in Belgium are particularly good and they, if they secure that in, the bone's not fixed. Yeah. So, so in Sam's case, he, he still has a broken collarbone. It's yeah. just that he has he's metal, he's got a plate that's yeah. holding it in place. Yeah. So then the main thing that you try to do for um, these athletes is just make sure all the secondary problems get sorted. So, you know, from a, from a crash anyway, if you're breaking your collarbone, you're getting a sore neck, you're getting you know, sore muscles, you're getting, and post-surgery, you've got swelling, you've got this, you've got that. But if you can manage those things quite quickly, they haven't lost any strength. They yeah. haven't lost their shoulder movement. They haven't lost any function. So if they're, if, I mean, the main thing is if they fall off again, they've got a plate there. So there's a risk, right? Yeah. So previously we'd say you're not allowed to get on your bike until that bone is healed. Now we're like, all right, look, <laughs> if you fall off, you know, just don't fall off, you know. Just try not to fall <laughs> Just don't fall off. <laughs> and if you don't fall off, you'll be fine. I mean, the problem there is I remember, like, when Tom's crashed into California and he got a plate and then um, they, like, didn't secure it properly or something like that oh, and the yeah, plate okay. shifted. That's not good. Um, and then he had to get it taken out and then the bone had to heal again and it was, like, this huge process. That takes a long time because yeah. then you actually have to wait for the bone to create that stable platform again. But if the plate is doing that, for you and you don't have any of the other secondary things like they've and the other thing is like with the strength of the cyclist maybe that's something that's changed but you know they're still strong they haven't lost anything in those two weeks so they've yeah. still got all those muscles they've still got all the ability to hold it and then if the bone isn't moving if the surgery is really good then there's no pain yeah. because the bones aren't moving around so they're actually riding pain-free yeah which is just kind of crazy whereas yeah the first fractured collarbone I saw for a normal patient I think yeah, I think it was like two to three months before they were like happy to lift their arm and they were so afraid of moving. Whereas yeah. now 
what I can do is I can say to the to the person, like, yeah, you can move your arm. Totally fine. We just need to move it this way and this way and this way. And if you feel these things, that's not so good. But if you feel this, it's fine. Keep yeah. going. So it's also that confidence to say, yeah, just keep progressing this way. And and if I can give the confidence to the rider, then they're like, oh, yeah, of course I can do that because they have knowledge. So I think a lot of it comes down to education and knowledge. Yeah. If we know if you're going to hurt yourself more, don't do it. And then they'll be like scared. But if you're like, no, you can't really hurt yourself. Just don't fall off. Then they're like, oh, cool. I, I won't fall off. Cyclists right. are a different breed. <laughs> they're a different breed. Man. They're just, and they heal quick. Cyclists yeah. heal like for, for broken bones and well, anything, cyclists, I think heal probably 50% faster than the normal population because they just, their bodies are healing machines. Yeah. So it's amazing. Um, so yeah, so broken collarbones, a lot of them. And then probably knees and backs are the two. So knee pain tends to be if there's some sort of imbalance in the body where they've got um, overuse of certain muscles or they're weak in some side, or maybe they've had a crash in the past and they've started to adapt weird movements on the bike if things get a bit rotated and twisted through the pelvis, they get knee pain or they get back pain. So other than trauma, probably knees and backs are the two things that I see the most of. Yeah. And a lot of that is just trying to balance the person's body back to where they need to be. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your, your time and you. your knowledge. And we'll follow up probably. I'm yeah, curious to hear Yeah, any questions, it. it'll be interesting to see. And this is definitely a moving space. So it's yeah. definitely not, we do not have all the answers, yeah. but at least we have more questions that we can follow up and sort of give some answers to people. And then hopefully we, yeah, can support a whole heap of riders that maybe otherwise would have slipped through the cracks. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool, that was great. Mm -hmm.